And what you've just heard is a little section of a 47-minute cantata that Nicholas uh, Flagello wrote um, entitled The Passion of Martin Luther King. He wrote it a few months after the assassination of King in Memphis, Tennessee in 1968. And what he did is incorporate some of the speeches of King, like I Have a Dream speech, into an original music composition. And it's a very powerful 47-minute uh, cantata that um, I think captures some of the passion of King and the power of that early civil rights movement. And Nicholas Flagello's uh, The Passion of Martin Luther King. Uh, this morning, I just want to introduce a little bit, and we'll pick it up again next week, a little bit of the passion of the Apostle Paul. You get it, uh, a sense of it as we continue our study of the book of Romans in Romans chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he said, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Can you already catch Paul's sense of, of passion. I, I am not lying. I'm telling you the truth. My conscience is testifying with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's hard to miss Paul's passion. He's talking about the Jewish people. I, I can't convey it any more strongly. I, Paul says, could be, almost wish that I could be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, the Israeli people, my kinsmen of the flesh. Paul was passionately concerned for the spiritual well-being of the Jewish people. It's important to understand that as we begin this uh, kind of new section of the book of Romans, we finished the first major section last week, chapters 1 through 8. We're going to start uh, this interesting and very difficult section, 9, 10, and 11. In fact, a lot of commentators, they just actually bypass it. <laughs> they just don't even deal with it because there's a lot of uh, contentious uh, texts in here and um, some of which are very difficult to understand uh, but we're going to begin Romans 9 10 and 11 but we have to understand it in light of what Paul just wrote if you were here last week if you were listening online and or down in F3 um, we looked at Romans chapter 8 that wonderful section that uh, concluded with these words for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This powerful truth that nothing separates us from God's love. Nothing will separate us. I'm convinced of it, except there's, there's like one glaring problem here. There's one kind of embarrassing situation. What do you do with the Jews? What do you do with Israel? I mean, Paul has just said, nothing separates us from his love. And then he looks at the Jewish people. 
Didn't God make promises in the Old Testament of unfailing love to the Jewish people? Didn't he enter into unconditional contracts and covenants with Israel and, and talk about loving them forever, that his love will never end? And yet, as Paul will survey the situation of his day, the Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ in large numbers, but it was the Jewish people who were fighting Tooth and nail, they were aggressively trying to squelch the message of Jesus Christ. And Paul has to look out over his people and say, what happened to Israel? What happened to God's undying, unfailing love for his special chosen people? And after sharing all this wonderful good news about the free gift of eternal life in chapters 1 through 8, it's almost as if there's this kind of embarrassing little truth that is getting swept under the carpet about some bad news about maybe God's relationship with Israel. Has he forsaken his people? Has God's word and truth about Israel failed? And so starting in Romans 9 and then 10 and 11, Paul addresses this apparent embarrassment related to God and his chosen people. What do you do with Israel? If it's true that nothing can separate us from God's love, what do you do about Israel? But before we delve into Romans 9 anymore, I want us to take a giant step backwards this morning for a few moments and uh, kind of get this large overview. We, we've done this before here at Fellowship, and it's worth uh, repeating, I think, this, this 35,000-foot level uh, of God's plan for the ages. Of course, we know it starts in Genesis chapter 1, and God created everything perfect. Everything that he created, he said it is very good. And then you go to the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, and everything's very good. Everything is perfect again. I mean, at the beginning of the Bible, everything's great and perfect. At the end of the Bible, everything's great and perfect, but my goodness, what a mess in between, because in Genesis chapter 3, as we know, Satan entered the world and tempted Eve, and Adam rebelled and knowingly took of the fruit. He put his hand in the face of God, and he rebelled, and all of the world, all of God's good creation was thrown into sin and ruin and destruction. And so the, the, the Bible is on the unfolding of, of, a, of the heart of God, of a plan of God to restore this messed up creation back to himself so that when we get to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it's all put back together again. And so it's kind of like, and not to oversimplify things, but it's kind of like a two-act play. The first act is the Old Testament and the events that take place in the Old Testament. Um, a key central passage in that first act is when God calls a, a, a moon worshiper from the land of Ur, the, uh, the city of Ur, the Chaldees, Abram, Abraham. And he gives them a special promise, a special, it's called the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, 
get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There it is, that ultimate hope. In you, all the families of the world are going to find blessing. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abraham. And from your seed, this great nation is going to come the ultimate seed. I'm, I'm going to bring a deliverer. I'm going to bring a savior. And um, I'm going to bless the entire world. And so God had a plan. And he begins to unfold that marvelous plan. It's the, it's the drama of redemption. The rest of the, the Bible is this unfolding drama of redemption that's going to lead to his ultimate triumph, to the reestablishing of his glory in this world and the defeat of Satan forever. Now, as promised, 400 some years later, that's exactly what happened. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abraham. And through this great nation will come this ultimate blessing. And 400 some years later, God redeemed a bunch of people enslaved in Egypt. The story of the great exodus and this ragtag bunch of, uh, of um, a progeny of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jewish people were uh, set free from the hand of Pharaoh. And he gives them uh, promises. He gives them this this hope of, uh, of the joy of uh, a relationship with him. He brings them and he constitutes them a special people at Mount Sinai. And he tells them, and it's recorded here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set... The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were the mo most of all the people, more number, because you were actually the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and he kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and he redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God is saying, there was nothing about you that would cause me to move in any positive way towards you. you you were the least of all the people but i loved you i want to keep my promises to your forefathers later the prophet hosea put it this way when israel was a youth i loved him and out of egypt i called my son god entered into a love relationship with this group of slaves and he redeemed him out of Egypt. And he gave him that special nation status. You are my special people. But God warned Israel that with those special privileges and responsibilities uh, or, or blessings come great responsibility. And in the giving of that law, he said, look, here's how it's going to work. You are my special people. I'm going to give you this, this land and you're going to bless the, the world. You're going to be a light to the world. But you've got to obey me. 
and here are my laws, and here's what you have to obey. And if you obey me, we're going to have a, a wonderful relationship together. I'll bless you, but if you disobey me, I'm going to, I'm going to pull you out of this land. I, I, you're not going to enjoy the privilege of being a special people. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to bring, bring death and destruction. Here's my law. Obey it and live, disobey it and die. Um, the possession of the land was dependent upon their obedience. And as we know, the story of that first act, the Old Testament, time and time and time again, the Jewish people de departed from God, strayed from following him, rebelled against him, followed other deities and gods. And eventually, that's exactly what happened. God was true to his word. And in 722 B.C., the northern tribes, ten tribes of Israel, were taken off into oblivion by the Assyrian power. And in 586 B.C., the, the southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah were also taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. And for all intents and purposes, the, the nation of Israel had come to an end. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, throughout this first act of this two-act play, God always sprinkled in glimmers of hope. He always reminded his people that um, he had entered into an everlasting covenant with Abraham. That somehow, through the progeny of Abraham, all the nations of the world would indeed be blessed the Abrahamic covenant, and God was going to keep that promise because it was an unconditional covenant. Um, in fact, he made another covenant with David, the king. In 2 Samuel verse, chapter 7, it's recorded that God said, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This was called the Davidic covenant. The Davidic promise. Um, forever mean, means forever in God's terminology. I'm going to establish your throne, your lineage forever. As time went on, he would continue to give these glim glimpses of hope, these little reminders that his word was true. There was an everlasting love relationship. And Isaiah, as we've seen before, the people who walk in darkness, they will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And at the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David or over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and even forevermore. There will be a little David boy that will reign forever. There will be a kingdom of his that will be perpetual. Promises. He told Jeremiah the prophet, I, I, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, okay? I mean, not like the old covenant. Not like, not like writing my law on tablets of stone. 
but I'm going to make a new agreement with you, a new covenant, where I'm going to take my law and I'm going to write it on your heart. And I'm going to guarantee that you will be a people who will obey me, will honor me. I'll forgive your sins. You'll be my people forever. Uh, promises of hope. There's a wonderful passage. We won't take the time to turn there, but you can read it on your own sometime in Ezekiel chapter 16 of God um, in this very figurative language. He, he finds, he, he writes in this very colorful language of finding a baby that had been just given birth and left and abandoned in the, in the wilderness. And he picks up this baby, he said, that was still squirming in its blood. And he, he cleaned it off and he, he raised this little baby to be his own. God loved Israel. But they forsook him. And yet the promises were there. And then one day, um, the angel comes, right? And tells this young virgin, you're going to bear a son and you're going to name him Jesus and he's going to save the people from their sins. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. He will sit on the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. This kingdom will have no end. And Mary said, man, how can this be? Um, eight days later, when Mary and Joseph take Jesus um, to the temple to be dedicated, and um, in Luke chapter 2, this aged man comes and he sees this little baby. And he took him in his arms and it says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel and Mary and Joseph said, we're amazed at these things. There in their arms was the light to the Gentiles, was the salvation of Israel, was the hope and the fulfillment of all the promises of the, of the first act of the play. Here he was. At age 12, he goes into the temple and he reasons and argues with the great thinkers of the day and they're astounded at the the brilliance of his mind, his, his ability to handle the scriptures. A little 12-year-old boy who, as he began his ministry, the dove ascends and the voice says, This is, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased. And John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sin of the world. And throughout his three years of ministry, Jesus proclaimed himself to be indeed the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises. He asked his disciples once, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah the prophet and this and that and the other. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter said without missing a beat, thou art the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus affirmed it and he said, Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter. That came from a divine understanding, a revelation from the Father.
this was the Son of the Most High, the one to whom God would give the throne of his father David, who would reign forever and ever. There would be no end to his kingdom. But John records for us in John chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own received him not. Those who were his own, they said, no way. We'll have nothing to do with him. The amazing thing, I think, about that time and the religious leaders of the day who were well-versed in scriptures, they understood the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. They knew that this one was going to be from the little hamlet of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. They knew that all these prophecies, there was no denying it, it was fulfilled in Jesus. He was the Messiah, but he was a threat. And so they turned him over to the Romans with trumped-up charges. They rejected their Messiah, and they crucified him. Jesus explains in a very dramatic parable over in Matthew 21, if you want to just turn there quickly. Matthew 21. Verse 33. Listen to this parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and he built a tower, and he rented it out to the vine growers. And then he went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Verse 35, the vine growers took his slaves, and they beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they, they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them and said, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize the inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Jesus concludes the parable with verse 40, therefore when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do? to those vine dressers, vine growers. And they responded, they said to him, well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said to him, did, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. Verse 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on, whom, on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, when they heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared for the people because they had considered him to be a prophet. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was applying and teaching that parable about them, the vine growers, the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people. 
who in the past had killed the prophets of old. And now when the son came, they took him and they killed him. A few days after Jesus spoke this parable, that's exactly what happened. Act 1 ends then, and Act 2 begins. We call it the New Testament. And though the people of Israel had failed miserably, God's program, God's plan had not failed miserably. God wasn't somehow surprised by all this. In fact, it was still all according to his predetermined plan. His understanding in the heart of his own heart as he was on, uh, unfolding this drama of redemption. Act 1 was indeed over, but Act 2 was about to begin as God was going to raise up a new people. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. And he gathers his disciples together for 40 days, and it says in Acts chapter 1 that he, he teaches them about the kingdom of God, that which is ever-present in the heart of God, the fulfillment of all the promises of Act 1. And for 40 days, Jesus is teaching about this coming kingdom. And, and then one day, as they're at the Mount of Olives, uh, Peter says, is it today? Is, is now the time that you're going to restore the, the, the glory to Israel? Is, is this the day that it's going to happen? And Jesus said, look, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that God has fixed. You just, you just be my witnesses. You proclaim what you have seen, what you know to be true. You do that in Jerusalem, and you do that in Judea and Samaria. You do it to the farthest most reaches of the, of the world. Don't worry about the times or the seasons. Just, you just be faithful, and you proclaim this good news. But, but wait until I send the Holy Spirit to empower you to do just that. And then he ascends, and he, he's gone. The king who was the fulfillment of all these promises in the Old Testament. Um, why not do it now? But God had other plans. And in Acts chapter 2, sure enough, the, the Spirit of God comes and descends on this group of people that are holed up in that upper room in Jerusalem, and, and power is given to them, and, and they indeed begin to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Now, Peter, James, and John, the early disciples, thought, let's, let's get this done in the next few weeks, okay? I mean, let's just get this done. Israel, repent and believe the truth about Jesus. Turn from your wicked ways and believe Jesus. Uh, he is the king, the promised one. And if you turn and believe, the times of refreshing, he says in Acts 2 and Acts 4, they preached, will come upon us. And, and the fulfillment of all those Old Testament Act 1 promises are going to happen. And Israel will be restored. And it didn't go so well for them. And, and James is killed, and, and the persecution sets in, and Acts chapter 8, and they're, they're, they're scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And they're left scratching their heads, like, what, what's going on here? Peter has a vision, and he's told to go to a, a Gentile centurion, Roman centurion, and by the name of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And he goes, and, and uh, it's not, I don't do that, God. I, I don't, we, we don't do Gentiles, but 
all right. And he goes, and all of a sudden, Cornelius and his family come to faith in Christ, and, and the Spirit of God descends upon them with clear evidence and power, and it's a head-scratcher. He goes back to Jerusalem to the Jewish apostles and says, this is what happened. Hey, don't blame me. I, I just did what God told me to do. And, and they said, well, I guess the Spirit of God has fallen upon the Gentiles too. It's a, it's a major head-scratcher. Like, this wasn't, this wasn't in, the plan, in their plans, but it was all part of God's plan because he acts, Act chapter 2, God had determined to raise up a new entity. Not a national entity like the nation of Israel, but a spiritual entity. It was called the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. If you will turn real quickly over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, uh, we get a little bit of that unfolding of that, that plan of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and you were without God, you were godless in the world. And then he says in verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you, you Gentiles who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew, Gentile, into one new man, and thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in, into one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. He came and he preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, verse 18, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And Paul is just explaining here in very detailed ways something new has happened, a new entity something new it hadn't even been seen in the old testament act one but now act two in this two-act play is is being lived out and god is forming out of both jew and gentile something new not a national entity but a spiritual entity the body of christ the bride of christ he's established in his flesh that oneness that that temple that the stones are being built one upon another, the church of the living God. He's brought about peace. But, but now wait a minute. What about Israel? What about the Jewish people? What about all those promises to Israel about being a chosen nation and being the apple of his eye and loving them for all of eternity forever and ever you will be my special people 
Had God changed his mind? When they nailed Jesus to the cross, and when he said, I have, I've given this over to another people, did God wipe his hands and wash them clean of the Jewish people? Had God's word failed? If it's really true that nothing separates us from the love of God, there's just one thorny issue it seems like he did for Israel. And that's where Romans 9, 10, and 11 comes in. Because under divine inspiration, Paul's going to answer these questions about Israel in these three chapters. He has to. You, you can't end the first section and say nothing separates us from the love of God without dealing with the thorny issue of the Jewish people. Because believe me, there were people in those days who were wondering if it was really true. Because if God, if his love ended for Israel, might it not also end for me? And in these chapters of Romans 9, 10, and 11, there are some great truths, difficult truths. I am not naive enough to believe that by the time we're done with Romans 9, 10, and 11, there won't be people in this congregation who aren't going to believe what I just said or agree with me in some form or fashion. These contents of Romans 9, 10, 11 have been hotly debated for 2,000 years. But when we're done with these chapters, I really believe they, they, will, they, they contain life-altering truth. See, one thing is, is certain. These chapters were written to stretch our understanding of God. You may not agree with everything I'm going to say in these next few weeks, but at least walk away with an understanding, my goodness, God is much bigger than I thought he was. We can just get a little sense of that, uh, the dramatic impact of these chapters. If we go back to chapter 9 and those opening verses once again where he said, um, I'm telling you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in, in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing pain, grief in my heart. For I could almost wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. The agony of Paul, we can't miss it. We'll look at this more next week. Now, I, I am willing to be separated from Christ. At least I wish that that could be a possibility just for the sake of my kinsmen. I am on unceasing grief. You talk about the passion of Paul. He's broken over the fact that his Jewish people have rejected Jesus, Messiah. It grieves them to the core. That's how Romans 9, 10, 11 begins. Now go over to the last chapter, Romans 11, the last verses of Romans 11, of this section, verse 33. And this is how it ends. 
oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who, who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What happened to Paul in three chapters? He starts broken, painful, and grief. And he ends on the height of worship and glory. The depths of agony, the ecstasy of, of worship. Amen to a great God. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Scripture happened. <laughs> I, I, Paul quotes something like, I don't know, over 60 times in the book of Romans, Old Testament Scripture. In 9, 10, and 11, the vast majority of those Scriptures are quoted there in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul went into the Bible. And as he got into God's Word, and he began to proclaim that as he wrote under divine inspiration, Romans 9, 10, 11, what happened to Israel? There in the Scriptures, he's brought face to face with God's plan for the ages. And the bottom line is, God's word hasn't failed at all. He is true to his promises. In fact, when it's all said and done, guess what? God wins. Oh, the glory of God. Amen, he says. You see, God has plans for the nation of Israel, and they're not finished yet. And scripture brought that out to Paul. It was scripture that encouraged his heart. It was scripture that led him into praise and worship of a, of a God who was unfolding his plan for the ages. And as we tear into Romans 9, 10, and 11, that's my prayer, is that our understanding of God is going to expand and increase. Folks, we are living in days of seemingly agony and despair. Like the opening verses of Romans 9. But we can move our way to Romans 11 and the, the ecstasy of, and joy of knowing God is in control. Who has known the mind of God? How unsearchable his ways, how unfathomable his ways. And we end in, encouraged because we've been a focus, we have had a focus through his scriptures on his character, on his ways on his plan for the ages. He wins, folks. He wins. And his word does not fail. A.W. Tozer has written that the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. In all her prayers and labors, this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them, undimmed and undiminished, the noble concept of God which we received from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. Ms. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, who said, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What, what is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. 
That was obviously true for the Apostle Paul. I hope it will be true for us. Uh, God's timing is perfect. As we go into Romans 9, 10, 11, we need to be stretched in our understanding of God in these difficult days. We need a fresh dose of a big God. And we're going to get it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for what you're going to do and through your powerful word. And I pray, Lord, that um, as we look into these passages, you'll allow us to do it with an open heart and an open mind and, and to step away in awe, though we may not understand half of what we're going to study. At least help us to understand this. You are incredible. And you're faithful to your word. Great, O oh Father, are you and your faithfulness. So prepare our hearts, Father, as we have this privilege of being in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.